welcome adventurer to the Level Up Board Game Podcast, a show that uses your experiences and opinions to discuss board games and the gaming community. Join the heroes as they conquer perils such as meeples, cards, and miniatures, all in an effort to level up. You're listening to the Level Up Board Game Podcast. Welcome adventurers, not only to episode 114, but to... Season four. Season four. <laughs> it's the first episode of the year four at the Level Up Board Game Podcast, and we are so happy to be part of your day. This is King Scott. And this is just Patrick. And today we have all the gaming goodness you've come to expect. But on top of that, we're going to visit Solo Land for 20 Strong. The 8-Bit Breakdown is the mega thematic Frostpunk. And we're going to wrap things up with some chat about the past year of the show, including, yep, the top 10 games that got the 8-bit breakdown. Oh, that's one of my most, that's one of my favorite things that we do because it like gives you that look back on the year and it gets me Jones to play some of these games again. Yes. Go, we're talking about uh, things that we might change going into year four and there's there's not much, but I was thinking, man, we really need to do like a quick segment, like a quick snippet every now and then of like, hey, we revisited this thing. You know what I mean? Because like- Oh yeah, definitely. So many games and we're, we're always trying to like talk about something new that we played or something different different but sometimes it's kind of cool to be like hey i've been playing this some more you know oh, we mm -hmm. went back that game that we reviewed back in episode 30 or whatever yeah i got that back to the table and maybe revisit some things here and there this was a busy past week wasn't it yeah with uh packs going on me trying to get over a sinus infection which really debilitated me horribly what was going on in your world? I know you had to patch some walls or something oh, like that. Yeah, no, it's, no, that's neither here nor there. I meant packs, of course. Oh. Man, that, what a fun time. The the four of us getting to the hotel. And uh, you know what? Let's hold off. Next week, we're yeah. going to do a side quest. We're going to do all of our okay. packs yeah. talk then. So all the, all the goodness, all the games, we're going to hold off until then. Let's banter a little bit. What you got? Well, hey, we talked about a game back in episode 18, and I just happened to take a look at Board Game Geek today, and it's number two on the hotness now. It was number three two days ago. Oh. It's number two, and that's Deliverance. Yeah, that's uh, Andrew Lowen's game. Yeah, and it's great to see that because it's been a while since we talked about it. Right. And God, almost 100 episodes now, you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Holy crap. It's good to see the momentum going and so much going on and, and it being so high on the hotness. That's wonderful news to see and hoping everything goes really, really great for it. Yeah, typically whenever a game is on Kickstarter and it goes live, it's going to be in the hotness. Everybody's trying to check it out. And then it simmers off, you know, tapers off for a little while. And then here we are two years later. People are getting the games in the mail. They're getting their deliveries. And then YouTube channels are putting up their videos yeah. with their, here's my review. So it's getting a lot of clicks and a lot of people checking it out on BGG as well. Hence the number two. They don't all do that. The really good ones get way up there. The ones, twos, threes. And uh, yeah, congratulations to Aaron. Uh, to Aaron to Andrew. Great to see Deliverance up there. And that episode, I did a little like before the episode starts thing. Yeah. And uh, I got to play the Deliverance like from the movie, the music. And was oh, really. Yeah, I was really, really proud of that episode. Yeah, that that's uh, that that's very different than the theme of that game. Right, right. <laughs> he even said he's like, yeah, people are always asking me like, wait a minute, Deliverance? Like, uh, 
Gonna make you squeal <laughs> like a piggy. <laughs> Scott, I got Mind Clash has a game called Iron Wood coming at the end of Q1 2024. I think that's whenever it's going to be uh, available to make your order on uh, GameFound, which uh, GameFound or Kickstarter, whichever one they use. Uh-huh. Uh, I put the link there. Check this thing out. Card-driven game, right? It's a board game, but it's card-driven. You've got asymmetric factions, okay. and apparently you're playing three of your cards per turn and carrying out all of the actions that the cards let you do. And the cards that you have are faction-specific. I don't think this is one of those, like, I have you know eight different factions to choose from out of the box. I think it's kind of like you're meant to play a one-on-one. Somebody gets this faction. Somebody gets that faction. The reason why I say that is because... The factions each have different looking pieces, one of which all of their pieces are wood. The Mm -hmm. other one, they're all metal. And I thought, what a cool way to like differentiate the two forces. And as you scroll down this preview page, on the left, you get like, here's these guys in iron with these big metal hammers coming from a tower. I was in on that as soon as I saw that. I mean, big Mm -hmm. war hammers. Yep. Let me play it. And you can tell on the other side, like they put the picture side by side. You can tell the other faction. It's like this this mystic with these like streams of mana flowing around him. Then mm-hmm. you see there's this big mech and this dude that's like ironclad. And on the other side, it's like these rogue warriors and furs. It's like two very different uh, different factions. And apparently they're, they're balanced to take each other on in this card-driven board game. It's Mind Clash. It's apparently one of their simpler ones. Uh, I, I forget what they call it. Mind Clash Play. Whatever they call that, like smaller line these are the easier ones to play line this Mm -hmm. is in that sub brand so i'm excited to learn a little bit more about it one of two players plays in about 45 minutes i want to see previews when that thing's uh going live in the end of q1 next year that that does look really cool and i mean there's nothing wrong with playing a simple little card game what's the main point of playing games entertaining yourself having a good time and if that fits the bill then do it Art looks great. It's Mind Clash. I'm in. Thinking about being in, I know seeing at PAX, a lot of stuff going on, was Lorcana had a lot of different things going on and giving out promos and all sorts of stuff there. And I just found out that there's a new Lorcana set coming out and it's bringing locations now. Mm-hmm. So you could have all these different places. Uh, what is it? Never Never Land or the boat from the rescuers, all sorts of different stuff. Sure. And I, I played in the last release event, but to be honest, there's there's nothing that really grabs me to do this, but it's still such a popular game. And this is coming out March of 2024. Now, have you played any more of it? I know you were toying around with the the starter decks a little no, bit. No, not since tinkering around with those starter decks. It it's fine. You know, it, it's a cute game. It's fun. I'm starting to wonder if maybe this is selling out and going crazy. People are going hog wild for this thing, and I think, oh my gosh, I think part of it is like. We said, what, about a year ago when this was announced, I was like, dude, I'm just going to get a box and sit on it. You know, I don't even care to play it. I just want to sit on the box. I think there's probably more people just buying and sitting on product. Like, I have to wonder what the percentage of people that own product and aren't actually playing versus people playing. I think SCG, they're able to put together a tournament weekly. Yes, yes. Every Wednesday they're playing. Okay. Now, I kind of disagree with you a little bit because... Whenever I played in that release event, Mm -hmm. as soon as the one person was done playing, my God, it looked like he had a pop-up office. I was just waiting for him to put a cubicle around him. (laughs) He had a little like briefcase come out, 
all these notebooks, everything else. It was like he had the current prices of everything and was buying and selling right then and there. Yeah, see, I think that's part of the lore. The uh, you know the, the the appeal of the game is the investor said like I want to have it because I think it's going to go up in value. Uh, Target gets it in right, yeah, and it's gone. It's gone immediately. Yeah. And I have to wonder, it's not little kids showing that just happen oh, to no. be showing up Tuesday morning when it comes in and, oh, there it is. I'm going to go get it. Or parents that are like, oh, J- Junior's going to want this for Christmas. No, it's it's junkies like us that are like, oh, there's that Lorcana. I'm going to buy it all. Right? Yeah. And there was, I don't think I saw a single kid in the tournament at PAX. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, there you go. PAX, now PAX had a tournament. But I mean, they're able to, if you go to your brick and mortar shops that are having magic three times a week and they can get their Pokemon and Yu Gi Oh tournaments firing off, it's going to be interesting to see in the next year or two if this has some staying power. Like, as oh, yeah. more product gets out there, are people going to actually play it? Someone like me who would have bought a box just to sit on it. Now, I'm a little bit of a different case because I, I never cared to like get into the tournament scene. I'll play it so mm-hmm. we can talk about it on the show. But that was the extent of it. But suppose that uh, you know maybe I'm a casual gamer. Maybe tournament scene might appeal to me. I, I don't know. I don't know how best to, to quantify what, what I'm trying to – Trying to explain yeah, well, here. I, I think it's definitely a, a wait and see type of idea here. And the other thing too with this is it's based on the animated things that Disney does. But well, actually thinking about it, I think the next set they're saying they're going to get more of the the television shows like Tailspin and Darkwing Duck involved with it. Nice. So that's something there that's going to expand it because they only have so many animated movies they can go to, and they don't. I, I don't know if they're going to make like original stuff for it. So it's not like magic where the imagination can go anywhere with it. They only have a certain thing they can do. Yeah. I, hey, if I had a crystal ball, I mean, I'd be much richer and more popular and stuff <laughs> no like kidding. that than I am now. We'll just wait and see what happens. All right, Scott, no more waiting around. Let's get right into recent adventures. We had the opportunity to play Dice Manor, the two yes. of us. I tasked you with doing the. Tell the adventures on how to play it. Okay, yes. Now, going through this, I was like, oh, this shouldn't be that difficult. And then I'm going through trying to put into words what you do in this game. And that's <laughs> whenever it got kind of crazy. First of all, Arcane Wonders was kind enough to give us a copy of this to look over and review it. Mm-hmm. So it was uh, published by Arcane Wonders this year and was designed by Garrett Herdter. 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 It's herd and then tur, so it's herder, herder. Anyway, now imagine, <laughs> if you will, you're constructing a dream house, but with dice. You with me so far? Yeah, well, that was easy, yes. Okay. You start the game with seven, seven of nine dice and two inspiration tokens. These dice are going to be used for you to place bids for rooms in your dream house you're making. The inspiration tokens are there to mitigate your dice rolls and allow you to re-roll or change a die up or down one number. Mm -hmm. And sixes can go to one and ones can go to six. A lot of times you can't do that, but you can in this. You're going to roll your dice. You separate your dice based upon the numbers. Put all the ones, the twos, the threes, all those together. Mm -hmm. So these are going to be your bids for rooms as well as for advertising and giving tours of your homes. But we'll get more on that in a minute. So around the central board, you have six spots in which to place a certain type of room. It could be a bedroom, a study, a kitchen, any of six different types of rooms. Each one is assigned a certain number. 
the dice you rolled can be used as a bid. So if you roll three twos, you can place those three twos next to the two room. Mm -hmm. So far, so good. All right. So the next player, they roll their dice and they place bids as well. Now, say they rolled three twos. Well, they can place those three twos on the two spot as well. But it's going to be below you since you were the first one. They will go underneath it. Or they could put uh, any other numbers out there that they put out. Now, I mentioned advertising. Now, this is to drive the interest in your house as far as the game mechanics go. Yeah, you got to get people touring. Exactly. And it means you're getting closer to getting your leftover two dice. You can place those two dice on the main board and advertise. When you do this, there's a track in the center that has your final two dice at the end. If you win the bid, you move your house up the track two spots and move your dice back the number of dice you bid with. So if you bid with three dice and one, you would move your house up two spaces and the dice back three. When it comes back to your turn, you're going to roll your leftover dice. Now, remember whenever you had three dice on that number two spot and your opponent put three dice on that number two spot? Well, if you rolled any more twos, you can put that on there to increase your bid. So that makes it even harder for them to get it. Or if you don't roll any twos and your opponent rolls twos, they can put another two on there and move that up to the top bid. So the bid is really based mostly on the number of dice you put out and not the number that's on the die. Now, finally, you can place a die in your house of the blueprints that you have put out. This will be the tour that you're giving. Each one of the rooms that you have, they will have a certain number on the center of it. So if you roll that number, you can put it on there. So you want to make a tour of going throughout the entire house. So it's important to kind of get an idea how you're going to lay out the blueprints. Anything from a rectangle to a square to a big cross, all sorts of different sizes. You need to plan out how you're going to best get through your house and show off the house to everyone. Mm -hmm. Now, at the end of five rounds, you will get points based upon what you earn during the game, how many different types of rooms you have, and also the size of the manor and the majority of colors. This one is really kind of surprising. I played it once, I played it twice, and it was like, eh, it's okay. Going through this again, I'm really tempted on how you were talking about earlier, getting this out and giving it another try. Because I think there's still something here to be explored. I don't think it's going to be one that's going to stick in the collection for years and years and be that old chestnut that comes out all the time but it's still one that really gives you a nice challenge and a lot of decisions to make throughout the game yeah that bidding mechanism at the start of the round where you're deciding how many dice to allocate to various uh, tiles that you want to yes. grab to put in your house i like that they have some different shapes to them which felt kind of Meh, because honestly, Scott, I didn't care what I took. I was going to find a way to make it work. Like each of the shapes has doors around the borders and you have to line up doors with doors. And whenever you're giving your tour, that's going to matter. But there's enough doors that like you can kind of just willy-nilly be like, well, I'll just take a tile and I'll make the doors work. Like I felt like I didn't have to give a whole lot of thought to that, which maybe that's a good thing because I didn't have to like, oh, crap, I screwed myself, right? Um, Oh, I did. (laughs) (laughs) It's a neat game. I like that it plays relatively quick, but it also, I'm with you, it doesn't feel like what you call it the old chestnut. I think I would describe it as an also played. Like, you know, if you're talking about this big game day or an epic cabin con weekend, and you're going over these wonderful games that you played, and you, oh, and I also played Dice Matter. 
you know, it, it didn't blow me away, but it wasn't bad either. It was a, it was simple and it was a fun hour long game. Yeah. It's definitely one that if someone brought it up, I would play it. It's a nice one that after you've finished playing Twilight Imperium, you don't want to go right into a big, heavy game. This is a nice one to kind of just let your mind relax a little bit, have a good time, nah, joke if, around the dude, table. If and you stuff finish like Twilight Imperium, you're done for the day. Yeah, nobody's going to be like, okay, let's break out a, uh, a palate cleanser. No, you're done hey, for I'm, the day. Everybody's I'm, like, I got to go home. I'm thinking of these going away for the weekend kind of game things. <laughs> All right. Um, so what did you play? You know what? I'm going to take us to Solo Land. Woo! So, King, normally I like to, like, kind of pre-script what I'm going to say so that I don't mumble and ramble on, but we might be rambling a little bit for this one, and this is going to be 20 Strong. This one comes from Chip Theory Games, a solo uh, card game, and it's called 20 Strong because the premise of the deck is you're using 20 dice. Now, you know how in Final Girl they sell you the console and then each of the boxes is like, it's like the cassette or the the game that you plug in. That's kind of what game... uh, Game Theory. That's kind of what Chip Theory has going on with this game, 20 Strong. So you have your 20 dice, three of which are going to work with a character or a primary card that you're utilizing in the case of the couple of games that I've played so far of it. And then the others are going to dictate what you're able to do on a turn. So the premise is, uh, and you know what, I'll use Solar Sentinels, for example. I've done Solar Sentinels, and I've also tried the uh, the Too Many Bones game that came with it. Also came with uh, Victorum, but I haven't cracked that one open yet. So uh, maybe in a future episode. Solar Sentinels is its own thing. It only appears in 20 Strong. The other cassettes that you can plug into 20 Strong, they all exist in Chip Theory Games as other games, like Too Many Bones, like Victorum, for example. So Solar Sentinels, I'm going to use that for the example. You've got three dice that are your stat dice. You're going to pick one of eight characters. So you've got four cards with a character on each side, and they're going to have a few stats on them. They're going to have their health, they're going to have their strategy phase number, and they're going to have their recovery. Okay. The way that you play this one is you have an enemy deck, a deck of cards that represent all the baddies you can run into. You're going to shuffle it up and make three stacks. You're going to take your character, plop that card down, and you're going to take those three stat dice, and you're going to set it to your character's starting stats. Easy peasy. Yeah. All with you here all all the way. Now, those three enemy stacks, the top card, uh, in fact, you just put the whole stack face up so that you can see the top card on each. And what you're going to do on a turn works like this. You're going to select one of the baddies on top of one of the stacks, and you're going to take it off that stack. You're going to put it down in front of you into the active area. That's who you're fighting. What's kind of cool is those baddies, they're going to have some ability while they're out and in play like, hey, you can't use red dice to hit this guy. Or if you don't kill him in the first round of fighting, he's going to deal an extra damage, that sort of thing. They all have some rules caveat to them, but they all have health. And your goal, what you're trying to do is get through one of those three stacks of baddies or multiples if you so choose. So -hmm. let's suppose that I pull a guy out. I now have to select how many dice I want to use to try and defeat this character who has, we'll say, four health. And if he's still there after my round of rolling, he's going to deal me two damage. Mm. So I got to get him down. I get to select those remaining 17 dice. They come in five different colors. You get a red die, which is super powerful. And then purple. And then green, and they just, they progressively get a little less powerful, less likely to hit, basically. Right. Okay. So I get to decide how many dice I want to roll. 
I don't want to take them all because I'm only going to get so many back. So let's say I pick my red, a couple purples, and a few blues because I got to deal some damage here. I pick up those six dice, give them a shake, give them a roll, and I'm looking for hits. And I'm going to assign those dice to this baddie for hits. Let's say, uh, let's say I kill them. I collect the reward. Most of them have either an instant effect or sometimes a state-based effect. Like this this card actually becomes an item and you'll tuck it underneath your character and maybe it's something you can use later or it's a permanent ability for you moving forward. But suppose that I don't kill him. Then he's going to deal me that one damage. I get to recover some number of dice. In this okay. case, we'll say my, my uh, character's recovery stat. Let's suppose that it was two. Of the six dice that I rolled, I get to take two of them, bring them back to my pool. And now I'm in round two of combat, attempting to oh. finish this guy off, right? Okay. Now, in that first example, let's suppose that uh, that I killed him. Yes, I would still get to recover, but that's the primary, that's the puzzle of 20 strong so far. Uh, as far as I can see, between Solar Sentinels and the Too Many Bones, which, I mean, it plays similarly, but different. The puzzle is, how many dice should I use, knowing that I'm only going to get X number back? Right. It's engaging. It's fun. It's incredibly difficult. I taught this one to you. What did you think? I did like it. Now, these are things with me playing solo games. I There's a lot that are like that, where you have a new card that comes up, you got to beat it. You got to roll so many dice in and, and destroy the enemy. Uh, what's the one? Infernal Machine, I think it is, is another one like that where... You roll dice and you have to destroy parts of this machine that's taking over the world. Mm -hmm. So I'm used to this and it, it was fun. Uh, I know I saw it at PAX and I was very tempted on picking it up, but I didn't. <laughs> yep, yep. But I wanted to ask is mechanically, was it fun for you to play it? Was it something that really drew you in? Or is it something where it was just like, oh, it's a solo game. I'll just go through it and move on. How, how did it really strike with you? A little bit of both. Uh, the only solo game... Well, no, that, that'd be a lie. I was going to say the only solo game that's captivated me uh, is uh, is Mage Knight. But you know what? That's that's entirely not true. Tainted Grail did it. There's I've played Frostpunk solo several times, so forget that. In fact, I should cut that audio because <laughs> it's just not true. Um, there is a I'm playing the mechanisms here. Like Solar Sentinels is not going to tell a story. You're not going to become engaged in the world of Solar Sentinels. You're trying to solve the puzzle. Okay. But it is fun. The, the goal is whenever you defeat one of those stacks of enemies, you move on to the boss. And can okay. you beat the boss? Scott, I took this thing into work. I was like, you know what? I got a half an hour break. I ate my lunch in five minutes and I just kind of hang out on my phone. I'm going to break out Solar Sentinels. And you could you can play it completely in that amount of time. I think I've only beaten it once in like six or seven attempts now, oh, which wow. that's a good ratio. Now, I'm not claiming to be great at solo games or anything, but it means that there's a learning curve. Like, oh, you mm -hmm. really got to work. And then once you figure it out, you just pick a different boss and go with a different Sentinel. Go with the one that has lower health and a higher strategy uh, number, something like that. It is engaging. It's fun because each of those characters, each of those baddies that you're going to come against has a different ability. This one yep. might turn into an item. This one might give you an instant effect. This one has a lot of health. Some of them, their names are in orange. And if it's at the top of a stack, that's the one that you have to select. And God help you if it says you got to select two more. So you remove one from <laughs> yeah, the other stack. That, yeah. And there's an orange underneath it. Suddenly you're up against five guys. It's like, I have two health. What am I going to do? And you start to look at it and do the number. You know, it, it, naturally you go, well, I'm just going to roll all my dice, whatever. Nah, but then you start yep. to look at the cards and, re okay, if I can take this one out, that'll give me two health. 
And if I could take that one out, it'll give me two dice back. Then I can let the other ones hit me for three. I'll still be alive. You know, you start to like piece together how you can do it. It is very fun for that. Well, it's something I got to say that strikes me with this game is hearing you say that you played it six times because so many times you're just learning a new game, learning a new game. That's the other what one goes aside. And seeing that you go, that you've been back to this that many times, that really says something of the pedigree of this game. That's very cool. Yeah, it's rare that, uh, that a game does that for me, but it's just challenging enough to keep me back. It's chip theory games, so as we know, components are off the charts. Oh, yes. How are you going to make card games cool? Okay. So all the cards, of course, it's the chip theory PVC style card. You can dunk it in water and dry it off. It's going to be just fine. <laughs> the game comes with a chip, one chip and this little like magnetic holder for it with a little arrow pointing to a spot. Now, you don't use that nearly as much in Solar Sentinels. They have these like caveat cards that mm -hmm. if you wanted to up your difficulty, like one of them says, uh, kill three enemies in one fight. Then the next one might say, uh, have over six health, right? And one of the ways that you can play is those are goals that you have to complete in order before taking on the boss. Ooh, jeez. Right. Now, it's it's plenty doable. You know, I, when I won, I was like, okay, I think I'm starting to get this now. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, So I'm going to start introducing those, and I don't think that it's going to make it overcomplicated. But that chip is magnetic, and it sits in that dial. It is used much more in the Too Many Bones uh, version of 20 Strong, which maybe I'll talk about that in an episode or two. Mm -hmm. uh, the inside of the box has a felt lining, which you could roll your dice on the table. And big whoop. But I've been finding like at work, I got to keep it down. I roll them into the top <laughs> of that little box. Minor complaint, but it may become major down the road. And I've seen other people online saying the same thing, that the dice aren't the highest quality. Now, how do you screw up a die? I'll tell you how. They have like the they're like sparkly they're translucent and they have sparkles in them or something they're like glitter okay. or something in there but like i picked up one of the dice and i'm feeling this like little flap on it almost Ooh. like a little chunk of it wanted to like i feel like if i got in there with a fingernail i could pull a part of it off okay. i don't know just be warned you know for as much as we've come to expect top notch quality from components from chip theory games i had a die or two that i thought like oh they go they goofed this one and maybe it's mm. not just my coffee. Also, when I opened the packaging, holy crap, this game smells. It smells like <laughs> chemicals. It's in PVC cards, man. You could take two hits of this thing and you can't get back to work. Whoa. Wow. Did mm. you smell it? Did I make you smell it? No, no, you didn't. You know what? Next time we're at the shop, I'm going to make you do a line of 20 strong. I, hey, hey, hey. I just broke my whole thing with speed sand. <laughs> All right. Let's get out of solo land. Okay. Well, and we're back. Scott, you got a new one on you. This this one came from PAX, so you can't talk about it next episode, but I want to hear about it now. This was one that I was very interested in. I saw different pictures of it, videos of it, and I'd never even thought about it being at PAX. Then Josh came back to the room one day and boop, popped it out. I'm like, well, crap, I got to go got buy that one. <laughs> so I went the very next day and I picked up a copy of Kira I. I think that's how it is. K-I-R-I-A-I. Well, yeah, that sounds good. This is a very small card game. It's all of 10, 13, 14, 15, 16 cards, I think it is. What, are you counting them as you... <laughs> I, I was counting a picture here. Fair enough. They are put in the coolest little package. It's like this little folding piece of material that mm -hmm. you have to untie it 
folded open. It has like this saying, this samurai saying, because it's all like ancient Japan feeling of this whole thing. Sure. The battle between two samurai. You open it up, it has like this saying uh, in the middle of it. It has like this little picture of two samurai fighting in front of a sun. There's a little pouch for you to put the cards into. Very, very cool. And they're the same type of cards that you were just talking about, where they're basically you can spill anything on them and wash them off, and they're going to be fine. But you have five cards that you're going to be playing with. That's Mm -hmm. it. And your card with your character and one special card. Now, in the middle, you're going to have one card that has five diamonds on it. On those diamonds, you're going to line up your samurai at a diagonal on there. They have like little shapes on you there for you to follow them. You're going to put them on there and they're going to eye up and they're going to square off to fight. Now, each turn, you're going to play two cards. One is going to be a movement card and one is going to be an attack card. Now, the movement cards, they're... Not really double-sided, but it's different things on either side. So you can put it in one way or you can turn it 180 degrees and use the top on the other side. All right. So it could be moving ahead two spaces. It could be moving back one space, moving forward one space, or flipping your samurai card around because your attack cards have things that are based on the heaven stance or the earth stance. Mm -hmm. So your three cards you have, you have one, it's heaven, you have one, it's earth, and one, it's both. So what you're going to do is you look at your opponent and you think, what are they going to do? Are they going to really go crazy and charge right at me? So do I want to use the attack card? It's only just right in front of me. Or do I don't want to reach out and just really whack them one? So you have to line up where the diamonds are in comparison to your card. Mm Because the diamonds on the other cards are going to show you where it's going to hit in comparison to where your characters end up. Man, I was inside Josh's head playing this thing. (laughs) I was just hacking him into pieces. It was great. But then he turned around and destroyed me in the next game. It's so small and so cool. It, It reminded me of like the appetizer to playing Sinjutsu. Right, right. You can play this thing in five minutes, play a best of three in 10 minutes, but still it's one of those things that's like, you can really picture the samurai going at each other and thinking how it's going to look whenever they attack. For a five minute card game, being able to give you a little bit of theme that way, that's pretty cool. You don't get that too often. It definitely does. Yeah. And it's striking the, um, the designs on it, everything they did with it really stands out. And it's something that easily, and and I know I talk about this a lot, you're playing it waiting for your dinner. You're playing it at a coffee shop. People are going to come over and they're like, okay, what is this? This looks really good. No, no, wait a minute. What if you're waiting for dinner at a coffee shop? Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Scott, interestingly enough, this one was Lucky Duck that was putting it out and they had it lined up right next to Senjutsu at PAX. Mm -hmm. And they even had a little ticker going like, who's demoing which game more? And I think both times that I was over there, Curry Eye the Duel was uh, it was leading, but that makes sense because it takes what three minutes to demo oh, it. Yeah. Whereas Senjutsu is a much bigger. But that was the first thing that struck my head when I looked at it. I was like, okay, so play a thing to do a thing and hope that you counteracted whatever thing they're doing. That feels a little bit like a watered down, simplified version of Senjutsu. Mm-hmm. Now I'm seeing in the comments as I'm as I'm listening and, and reading over some of the comments people have to say about this is that uh, it comes off as kind of a glorified rock paper scissors. Now to its credit, 
Senjutsu is a phenomenal game. And Mm -hmm. I could see where if you were being, I don't know, a board game snob, maybe you could draw that same parallel. It's rock, paper, scissors, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. This being smaller, it's going to be a lot easier to draw that correlation. Is there enough meat on the bones here? Did you find it was a little too much like, okay, we're just basically throwing down a card, hoping that they didn't throw something else down? It is something that's very simple. Mechanically, there's nothing that's changing the way that games are going to be played. Mm -hmm. But the design of it and the look of it and just the quickness and the fun aspect of it. That's what I like. That's what I wanted. I wanted something simple, fun, quick to play. And this is definitely going to be one of those ones that you aren't going to take hours and hours to play. You just want to play something simple. Just get that quick game. Like you said during uh, lunch, when you're at work, you and your friends, you're sitting around, you're just going to play that while you're busy BSing about what's going on and who's wearing what. And oh my God, can you believe that Tom wore that tie again? It just looks actually awful. Unbelievable. Yes, always Tom. Scott, but, how much uh, did you pay for this? This was seventeen dollars, and that's no, con price. No, 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 take take it back. Uh-huh. Fifteen. Oh, okay. Well, not bad. And I'm seeing Miniature Market has it now for twelve. So it yeah. seems like it's a an appropriately priced, fun, simple, quick two player game. Very much so. And yeah, this is one that I know is going to be in my bag for quite some time. Carl, what's up, buddy? Okay, it's that time. Top 100 update. Scott, we got a debut, I think. Uh Yeah, I think. So, uh, (laughs) I like the I think part. (laughs) It may have been in the top 100 before. It may have just been down, but I can't find out what replaced it. The problem is the dude that does the top 100 stuff on BGG, he didn't do it this week. So I found the one from last week, and I was like, wait a minute, something... What's so I always check and see whenever he missed. You know, that's neither here nor there. Top 100 debuts, Tricarian is at number oh. 100. It pushed out Kalis. Oh, wow. Yeah. No changes in the top 10. New highest peaks, games that are higher than they've ever been. A couple that we've been saying a lot for the last several months. Frosthaven at number 44. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Obsession at number 76. Oh, it's got to keep going. Keep going. The climb continues. Can it get to 50? We'll be following. Happy birthdays. Scott, we've got three oldies and very, very goodies. Seven Wonders Duel, eight years. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, our buddy Jeremy, who we introduced to Board Game Arena, Uh he's been uh, dabbling in some other stuff. I saw a notification. Hey, Jeremy, uh, Jeremy the Good, he calls (laughs) Jeremy the Good has won Seven Wonders Duel for the first time. I was like, oh. That he's 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 branching off and playing on his oh, own because up until then every one of his plays was with us. Boy. Uh-huh. <laughs> Castles of Burgundy, twelve years, and Battlestar Galactica, fifteen years. Oh, such a fun, fun game that is of stabbing your friends in the back. Oh, I'm sorry, I I, I digress. Well, Scott, it's that time. An 8-bit breakdown, one that I can't wait for. We're going to do Frostpunk. Here's the deal, though. I'm so glad glad that you learned it, and uh, I can't wait to hear what you're going to have to say about it. Well, I'm going to make you do the walkthrough. It's super complex, and I don't feel like it. Hey, adventurers. King Scott here. Okay, we like our walkthroughs to give a general idea of what's going to happen when you play a game. If I go over the entire rule set, then the episode will go four hours long and you're going to fall asleep. 
so I'll keep it brief. Frostpunk is designed by Adam Kwapinski and was released in 2022 by Glass Cannon Unplugged. This is a cooperative game for one to four players that plays in about two to three hours, depending on the experience levels of players and the scenario you're playing. <laughs> More often than not, the length of play depends on how long it takes you to die. The game is based on the video game of the same title, and the premise is that a sort of new ice age has caused a frozen apocalypse of sorts, and your small band of survivors need to establish a community in order to survive. The players represent the leadership of this community and will be tasked with several decisions that will ultimately lead them to victory or see them banished from the settlement for their poor leadership, <laughs> losing the game. Okay, general setup. Frostpunk has about a dozen scenarios in the rulebook to choose from. The main board is a hex board comprised of three rings of hexes, with a big generator in the middle. At the start of play, only some of these hexes are revealed, and they have some amount of resources available on them, wood, coal, or lumber. Each player assumes one role within the settlement, such as the doctor or the generator engineer. This provides a simple ability, but also gives that player some of the game's upkeep to take care of, sort of splitting the micromanaging of tasks among players. Now, included in the setup are several additional track boards to represent various game states. The weather board, for example, shows how cold the settlement is and dictates the likelihood that your people will get sick when you use them. The generator board shows how your efforts to heat the settlement are combating the cold. The population board shows, well, just that, your population. But more importantly, it shows how many of your people are sick as well as how much food you have. The buildings board shows the various buildings you'll be able to construct throughout play, basically adding a worker placement spot. The worker board contains the starting workers that players have at their disposal, laborers, engineers, and children. The hope track shows the general sense of your population. Do good things and maybe motivation or care will increase, but if things go wrong, anger and despair will increase. Finally, the Exploration Board is available for sending out expeditions which may or may not be an integral part of your play depending on the goals of your scenario. Now, let me give you a sense of what happens in a round of the game. Let's walk through the phases. Phase 1, Dawn Phase. Nothing to see here. Just pass the first player marker and advance the round mark. Phase 2, you draw a Morning Card. This is simply a card that poses an issue that your group needs to address. Maybe a couple of citizens got in an argument over stolen food, and you have to decide what to do. Make a choice, and the card will instruct you to see the consequence, might be good, might be bad, into the dusk deck. Phase 3 is the generator phase, where you'll be seeing how well the generator is holding up. This matters because as you put coal cubes into the generator, it's a dice tower meant to hold some cubes in, have too many cubes coming out, of the generator, well, it's uh, gonna overload and explode, which is yet another way you can lose the game. Phase four is simply drawing a weather card and moving some indicators to show where on your map is considered cold. Phase five is super quick. Players can pick one of their abilities and make it active for the round. Then we get to phase six, which is where the bulk of play takes place. 
Players will take turns clockwise placing one of the available workers to an action space. This includes clearing snow to add new hexes to the map, gathering resources, constructing buildings, and more. Make no mistake, 90% of the game takes place in this phase. Remember that morning card that had a decision to make? Well, phase 7 is where it might be resolved. A card is drawn and resolved from the dusk deck. Often these cards care about the status of the settlement's hope and discontent. For example, your card might say that if your motivation token on the hope track is active, plus three food. If not, minus three food. Phase eight, you've got to feed your citizens or sickness and hunger will rise. Then finally, in phase nine, put everyone to bed. Oh, <laughs> even that's a struggle. You probably don't have enough beds for all your citizens and half those beds are probably cold anyway. Yep, this game doesn't pull any punches. The main points to drive home about what happens when you play the game are this. You've got an objective that you have to meet. That typically requires very efficient use of your workers and resources. While trying to meet these objectives, you're going to have hardships to face. From the ever-decreasing temperature to the stability of the generator, the health of your citizens, etc., Frostpunk is a game that puts players in a position where it's impossible to meet every need, so you'll find yourselves discussing which sacrifices are the least harmful. Sure, you can spend some of our precious resources to provide heated meals, but if we build a mill instead, then we can add sawdust to the meals and feed more people. It's a game of making difficult decisions, facing the consequences, and hoping to survive. Now, as always, there's more to the game than we provide in a walkthrough. In the case of Frostpunk, that involves the ways expeditions work, the ability to enact laws, the abilities of the buildings, the variability of the scenarios, and a lot more. But I hope this walkthrough gives you the sense of how Frostpunk is going to play when it hits your table. How did it fare while on ours? Well, bundle up, adventurers. It's time for the 8-bit breakdown of Frostpunk. We roam the still, cold world. No horizon in sight. The rulers of old, stripped of pride and glory. It feels as yesterday we were turning the wheels of progress. Until the frost stopped it all. Suddenly, without a warning. When tides had changed, they changed for all of us, no matter wealth or class. We've lost our world to snow, and with it, our last traces of humanity. Hey, thank you, King, for the excellent walkthrough of today's review game, Frost Punk Adventures. As you know, we like to look at eight bits, eight facets of this game to tell you all about it. We're going to start with art and components and finish with was it fun and who's it for? Art and components, Scott, we've got a little bit of a disclaimer. We were playing with the Kickstarter all in because we're rich. 
That means the playmat, the realistic resources, the miniatures for the buildings, the plastic trees, everything with that nice wash on it, plus the gigantic blue box oh, to hold it all God, in. Yes. Oh, wait, you know, speaking of that blue box, okay, lean in, lean in. Okay, okay. Give a listen to this magic right here. Okay. <laughs> You know we love to give some privilege to that. So we had the Kickstarter version, the regular version. What's the difference? Because you saw saw what I have. Regular versions can have wooden resource tokens, right? So we had a nice, neat little plastic tree. It's a a treeple. It's a like pine tree meeple, okay, instead. We had the little, it looks like coal and wood. Whereas Mm -hmm. it's basically like, think Stonemaier Games uh, uh, steel and wood in – uh, in scythe. That's yes. basically what comes in the regular version. It's gorgeous. Just the same, albeit oh my, in a yes. slightly different way. The wooden pieces give you a classic Euro look, while the plastic helps to maybe more directly evoke the theme. What do you think about the art and components? This was something I know looking at the person I was, it was the, the character I was playing. It wasn't really clean artwork. It looks dilapidated. It looked like it had been through the ringer. It looked like it was actually on the front lines of this wasteland and just Mm -hmm. barely hanging on. And I think that that did a lot to encompass the look of things here. The components, really dead on. They looked great. The big... uh, uh, That's a generator. Yeah. The generator in the middle, that was... I mean, it easily could have been replaced with just like a, a Pringles tube and a, and a little cardboard thing dice to tower. Toss sure. things out, but it just looked so great on that board. It really did encompass and make you feel like you were there. So, yeah, the the components top notch on the Kickstarter components. Yes, there are a couple minor complaints that we we just got to point out. First, that generator for as awesome as it is and captivating, and it's like right out of the video game. It's so yeah. huge. It's kind of best served off to the side of the table. And it yes. even says it in the rule book. It's like, you know, if you want to put this off to the side and just store your resources in the center, you may. And I'm like, well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, what? <laughs> thank you, Glass Cannon, for giving us permission to put it off to the side. It is better off to the side of the board. And that's, in fact, how we played with it. Those building minis, they're meant to sit on top of the building tile, mm-hmm. uh, just cover replacing the image with a 3D right. yeah. thing, leaving the iconography right below it, which is great. The problem is if you're on the other side of the table, all right, picture tile, picture a building standing up covering three quarters of the tile, and you're on the side where you can see the back of the building. You know what you Mm -hmm. can't see is the iconography below it. Now, it wasn't a huge problem because this is a game where you are standing up. You know, you're you're talking, you're walking around the table trying to come up with, okay, what does this do? And when I say standing up, part of that is just because of the challenge of learning the game. There's all those buildings that you can buy. Oh, what do those do? Oh, what are we out on that tracker? Oh, you can holler across the table. It's just yeah. easier to stand up and have a quick look. So you can see these things easy enough, but the buildings can kind of impede. Uh, honestly, after your first play, maybe two, uh, put it to you this way. By the end of what the play that we did with Jeremy, that play, for example, with Jeremy and Ryan, yeah. that was our first play of this game. We knew what each building was and what it did. 
Yeah, like, you yeah, have we were to on know. You can't not that, know. The artwork, it's taken directly from the video game. I played the board game before the video game, and I was like, huh, I suppose I got to try out the video game, which is what you'd expect. It's very much the same thing. The tie-ins are phenomenal. The art is all taken directly from the video oh, game. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I like that aesthetic. It ties in quite well with bit number two, the theme and immersion, and I'll give you the floor because I wrote a novel for this one. Ooh, okay. Well, I will keep it short and sweet here. Yes, it really did get thematic. It did immerse me in this. This is one of those few games that I actually felt bad when we had people dying, when we mm-hmm. had to make the decision of, are we going to get a, a, a sawmill or are we going to get a house where we can start healing people? All these different little things, they were really difficult decisions to make up. Right. And it was one that, we didn't take lightly, I don't think. I mean, we were really involved with that game. And that's definitely a, a positive whenever it comes to these type of games. You don't want to just like, oh, uh, we just need this resource and this. So let's just do this. That, that'll work out best. No, we were really discussing what was going to be best for our community to be able to survive through this storm that's just on its way. It's coming. We don't know. It's It's slowly getting there. But we have to get ready for that storm. Um, So, yeah, I definitely got involved with this and really felt immersed in the game. Okay, crack that spine of that book (laughs) open and go to Tom Patrick. All right, so getting immersed into this theme, it's desolate. You're scraping by. You're trying to come up with some sort of order and sustenance and having to make sacrifices along the way. This game is so thematically rich. I was getting cold just playing it. Never before have I done so much strategic table talk in a co-op oh, yeah. game as we did in Frostpunk. It comes out in uh, in Spirit Island, right? It's way more here. And here it's also thematic. You're saying, the li- but I don't want to feed the people sawdust. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that. <laughs> things like that happen. Let's outline some of the ways that the theme just boils over. Wait, that's warm. What's a cold one? Let's well, how the theme just freezes over. Yeah, Sorry. I guess so. All right, first uh, of all, the, the theme on the rocks. <laughs> the game is meant to make you feel like you just don't have enough stuff, right? Yeah. Scott, did we at any point feel like we had enough stuff? There was never a turn that we sat there going, <laughs> okay, we can rest on our laurels here for this turn and really think hard what we're going to do next turn. No, never. <laughs> you need wood for buildings. You need food. Good Lord, you need food. You got to get cold for the generator to keep everything warm, or at least warm enough. Did I mention, you need food. (laughs) You need tents. You need housing. Don't forget that stuff that you're going to need for your objective for whatever scenario you're playing. Oh, and you need food. (laughs) (laughs) It's meant to be an uphill battle where sacrifices have to be made, and that's obvious right from the get-go. Next up, you've got morning cards that present you with a decision every day. And then the mm-hmm. decision that you're going to make is going to seed a card into the dusk deck that may or may not eventually come back and bite you or reward you based right. on the decision that you made. In our play, we had some ruffian out stealing resources, so we oh, had to God, decide yes. how to deal with them. So what else? We had, we had uh, kids. We had uh, kids forming a hooligan streak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> we did, right? You can't make that up. 
We had shadowy characters around the outside of our encampment. All of these things made our encampment ours and made that mm-hmm. playthrough unique to us. Right. They brought the world to life and they forced us to make decisions on what we're going to do about them and suffer the consequences or reap the rewards of the decision that we make. It's all attempting to appeal to our humanity, our emotions. You know what's really cool? The next time that we play, those cards are going to be different. We're going to have a different set of things that we're going to see. You send out expeditions searching for resources. The need for beds and food increase and decrease based on your population. You have people die? Well, you don't need as many beds anymore. (laughs) Yeah, but then that expedition comes back with eight more people that they just happen to find. And you're like, well, where are we going to put them now? And that's where it appeals to emotion. You've got that decision, like the, the card will say, like you can take them in. Increase your population. It's like, well, we want to help them. But we just don't have the beds. Are we going to really turn them off? Each building does something thematic and it interacts with the game's mechanisms. The laws that you implement are going to increase discontent or increase hope while seeding cards. I don't know why I said it like hope, but they're (laughs) going to increase hope while seeding cards into that dust deck, which are going to yield consequences. I said, honestly, I struggle to think of a game that does a better job of capturing theme and carrying the players into the world of the game than this. So I'm just going to go ahead and stick a flag in the ground. This is my number one thematic game of all time. Wow. Okay. Hands down. Bit number three, complexity. Okay. Now, this is a complex game until you understand it. That really sounds like something that Yogi Berra would say, honestly. (laughs) Way to go. (laughs) But once you get a few turns in and you realize what your choices are, the difficulty is deciding what is going to cause the least amount of death or sorrow or pain or whatever. Mm -hmm. And during our playthrough, you had mentioned this a number of times, the first two, three turns took us something took like that. a long time. And then after that, it just got flowing. And then we just ran right through that last hour and a half or so of those last three, four turns or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it really did pick up speed. There's a lot going on in this game. But you give the time to go in there and find it and do it and play it and learn it. It will reward you, like you said, with a a, a top-notch experience whenever you're playing this. Yeah, round of play has nine phases, but you're only spending about – like you're going to spend 90% of the game in that sixth phase where you're doing mm-hmm. worker placement basically. Uh, but each phase has a rule that needs to be understood. Uh, part of capturing the theme so well is having to add mechanism, have, having to add maintenance, things that you need to do to continue to have the game function. Actions might be cold or warm, which might result in yeah, six oh, citizens, yeah. which eventually could lead to their death. Laws can be implemented. You kind of have to know what they are from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Maybe the biggest bit of complexity for newer players is that there are something like 20 different options for buildings that you oh, can my, build. Yes. It serves you well to know what they do. And the same goes for the laws that are available. You're going to have the same four options, this or that for food, this or that for child labor, for example. The four of those options are always there. So eight different laws you can always do. And then four random laws dictated each game that you may opt to implement. Uh, So we had like the fighting arena. That's not going to be in every game. No. But whether or not to do food additives or heated meals, that's going to be an option every time we play. Mm Mm-hmm. It's a game that's going to require a learning game, ideally with someone who knows it quite well. But I do think that subsequent plays speed up tremendously. Absolutely agree with you on that. 
I'll do the rule book, you take the curve, because that's respectively what we did. Well, well, yeah, after I did that amazing walkthrough. <laughs> the rule book <laughs> is a giant plus, all roughly 50 pages of it. Given the number of things that you need to learn in order to play the game, it does a very good job of detailing each and every action in an order that makes sense. There are tons of illustrations and examples that drive home game concepts, and overall, I was really pleased with it. That said, if you're learning to play by the book, you're going to have to refer to it quite a bit, and I would definitely suggest watching a how-to-play video. They're long, they're worth it, they cement everything in the old noggin. Scott, you take the curve. Okay, learning curve, you did a great job of teaching the game to us. Thank you. Now, going back on what you said, I will have to say I agree that the rule book is very well done because the number of times that we came up with questions, you were able to find an answer almost immediately. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. And it wasn't anything like, well, here's what it says. How do you think we ought to interpret it? It was just basically black and white how it came out. So it, mm -hmm. it does a very nice job, and that was definitely a plus. I think the learning curve came across very easily. The number of actions you have, it goes through and explains them what you're going to do, but you don't know how to optimize those decisions until you're further along. How to do it well. Yeah. Yes. Learning curve, it is a steep one, but it's definitely worth it on this game. Would you say this is a game that's, uh, I've said already, it's probably going to require a learning game? Oh, 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 absolutely. And normally a long game, I'm not really all that hot or fond of those. Um, no, you kind of taper, I don't want to say taper off. Your games tend, you like that two hour and under oh, time yeah, frame. Yeah, exactly. Hour and a half, two hours. But this is definitely one that if you said, hey, we're doing Frostpunk again, I would definitely see if there's room for me to play because I want to go back and explore this game again because it was really that good. I'm glad to hear that. Let's go to bit number five, the meat. Oh, the meat is that generator, that, that furnace in the middle because you have to make sure that you keep things warm because you have those decisions that come up. You need to do it. Well, you're going to send people out. It's going to be a cold action. Well, people are going to get sick. Well, we need to make sure we get stuff in there to keep things warm. But if we take things to keep them warm, we won't have things to make the buildings. What are we going to do? What's going to be the most optimal thing? That whole idea of that heat meter that you have is such an important part of Every decision you make in that game, you're looking at it thinking, okay, we can fit in there. We could do this maybe one more time before we start running into problems with the cold. That was such a, an integral part of this game to be successful with this game. I thought we were going to actually pull it off and win. I mm -hmm. felt really, really good about it. And then slowly but surely, <laughs> things just started unraveling and going downhill quickly. Uh, but yeah, I definitely say that the heat meter and making sure that you have the warmth to do the actions you want to do, that is such a, an integral part of this game. What about I'm you? What was the meat for you? I'm going to agree, but I'm also going to expand upon it because the same concept of the heat being so important and the generator being managed is so important. We could say the same thing about having bedding. For our citizens and oh, a yes, place yes. for everyone to sleep. We could say the same thing about implementing the appropriate laws. Basically, the rounds that are not taking actions, they're doing a thing 
behind the scenes of the game. They're they're adding a variable or they're adjusting something. And in that sixth round, that action phase, that's where you have a chance to influence it oh so slightly. And you kind of got to do them all and you can't do them all. And I think Mm-mm. that for me, the meat of the game comes from making those decisions because they're often going to affect the hope and the discontent track. And you will lose the game if you have nothing left on the hope track or if the discontent track is full. And every little facet of the game can affect those. So to me, I think uh, managing the hope and the discontent, which is in so many words, the same thing. You know, you said the generator. I think it can go to two or three other things as well as the generator, all leading to the hope track. So, So yes, absolutely. Very, very meaty. It's an epic game. We don't toss that around very often, but the more decisions that a game offers, then the typically, typically the more meat you're going to find on the bones and it is here. Yeah. Well, okay. Since you're kind of on a roll here, the replayability and variability, do you want to go first or do you want me to take it? Well, you said I was on a roll. I know. Well, go. Go. Things are going to change every game. Uh, You get several different technology cards of which you're always going to have the uh, the same eight, as I'd mentioned before. And then you're going to have four that are different, sometimes with buildings each time. Oftentimes, uh, you're going to have a, a new worker placement opportunity coming with those buildings. The game gives you several scenarios in the box. The biggest differentiator from game to game, I think, is going to come from the morning and dusk cards. Those cards offer a huge range of decisions that you're going to be making, each with branching consequences. And I think you could play the same intro scenario. Honestly, Scott, we would never have to do anything other than that intro scenario. And I think I would be content with this game. You could do it a dozen times and each play is going to feel differently solely because of the, the, the morning and the dusk. Dex, mm-hmm. never mind the other half dozen variables, what you build, the order that you build them, that sort of thing. What do you think? Replayability and variability. It, it's definitely there. I mean, you've got a lot of different options that go on in there, but still, it's not a wide open sandbox. You still have those same things you need to do, but mm-hmm. one thing might be a little bit more important this play than the other one. Yeah, but you're going to always need beds. You're going to always need heat. Oh, yes. You're always going to need food. (laughs) Don't forget to feed your people. The replayability, I could see people going either way, that they definitely want to play this again, or they get turned off with the idea that basically you're going to die every time you play this game. It's going to be how long do you live? And I, I think that's a big thing with the replayability. It's more based on what, you bring to the table whenever you're mm-hmm. playing it. It's not really as far as what's in the box because I think everything in the box is replay- replayable. Everything in there makes it variable for so many different reasons, but it's what you bring to the game that makes it replayable. Bit of an event game, isn't it? Oh, 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 oh. Set yeah. aside You know whenever I said about the game you're going to play after you play Twilight Imperium? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Dice Manor. You're not going to play that after this game. You're, yeah, you're probably fried. fried after this. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, that's maybe we'll call that a minor downside. So let's go right to bit number seven. I'll give you the floor for the downsides. Downside. You're going to die. <laughs> Patrick? <laughs> it would no. be a bigger downside if it was like, well, you're going to win every time. It is a very hard game. You're right. That's yeah, a, that is a downside. It's extremely hard. I think the downside really is, once again, getting to the whole idea of what you bring to it, what you're coming to the game with. 
it is a daunting looking game. You look at it and you're like, whew, I don't know if I'm up for this. I don't know if I have the skills in order to play this game. I don't know if I'm going to be in for it for 30 minutes. I'm going to hate it. So I think it's really variable based on what you think you want to get out of the game because it is such an event game. You need to stop and think, what do I want to bring to it? What do I want to play? Do I want to have this experience? You have to really kind of think that out before you go in and play. What are your downsides? Well, you just took a like half of my paragraph here because oh. you nailed it. Uh, it. It can be intimidating, yes, and it is very difficult. Um, things that you might not know because I kind of took over this half. It's a bear to learn and to teach. Oh, I bet. Yeah, yeah. Scott, I've had this thing for a year. I, we were talking about it back in March. Yeah, we're going to yeah. get it to the table. And I was like, damn it, I'm actually going to do it this time. <laughs> Learning curve is steep. Learning Frostpunk was a good while reading through the rule book and doing so in a way that would commit concepts to memory. You know how like some rule books, they have that section in the beginning about like, hey, these are important concepts to understand. Yeah. They've got it here too. And they're not like you should know this. It's like, no, you. this is need to know. This is 101. You can't play the game without understanding these concepts. Then I tried to simulate a round of play and then another. And then I watched Paul Grogan's how to play video and oh. it started to cement, right? Another one. This thing is a table hog. Oh, God, yes. Yeah. If you've got like the little old lady uh, three by three card table, you can't own this game. You can't play it. You would need to bump four of those things together. My table is probably, I've said it before, like what, four and a half by nine or four and a half by yeah. 11? It's massive. You could you could simulate a war on this. You, you remember the old war movies where they have those battle staves and they're like pushing troops oh, across yeah, with yeah, those yeah. sticks? You could do that on this table and it took up the whole thing, which in turn means set up and tear down. Oh, holy smoke. Yeah. Set up and tear down take a lot of time. I'm talking there are 12 pages in that rule book that tell you how to set the game oh. up. And then you flip to your scenario and it might modify that a little bit. So there's a lot going on there. Then whenever you go to put it away, you got to put scenario cards where they go in the right order. And the insert is kind of mediocre. That's what I got. Downsides. Okay. okay. Let's move it to bit number eight. Let's turn it around for was it fun and who's it for? Well, for the was it fun... Let me go back to our play. At the time, I figured there were some good bits here. I need to capture these and, <laughs> and, and save them for poster posterity. Hallmark moments. Now, these were actual quotes while we were playing the game. First of mm -hmm. all, can we send children to fight in the arena? That was one. <laughs> we, we, we built it. <laughs> Next one. Can Hold a child on, operate a saw sawmill? I know it's a bad idea, but... <laughs> the answer is, in the game, no. You're not allowed to send them to the sawmill. They can only go collect stuff. <laughs> and the final one, I want child labor now. <laughs> that was Jeremy. He wanted to put those kids yes. to work. Oh, man. So, yeah. Things like that come up, yeah. It, it was fun. It was fun with the people that you play with it. I could see some people getting really invested in the game and not bringing that fun. But the group we had, we just had fun with it. We were joking around about it the whole time. And I think that's what made our experience special. For mm -hmm. who's it for? This is for someone that really wants to dig in deep, get, your, get their fingernails dirty, play a big, meaty game. There's no way around this. This is a meaty game. 
you are going to be at this for a while. This is not one where you're going to like, oh, we got uh, a couple hours. Why don't we break out Frostpunk and play it? No, no, that's not going to happen. So you need to be able to dedicate the time to it and enjoy it. Don't get too hung up on it. Have fun. Be silly with it. Because after all, it's a game. We're just having fun. So that's my whole thing about was it fun? I mean, yeah. Can a child operate a sawmill? I know it's a bad idea, but it was great. That's fun. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, What about you? I'm going to go ahead and say it outright. This is my favorite cooperative game, period. Oh, Uh, wow. Mind blown. Scott, we just did our top 10 games of all time, and we won't be doing it again until episode 200. But honestly, this has a chance of bumping something out of my top 10. It is that good. Scott, you know what else? We said we want to start talking a little bit more about value. Frostpunk, now we we have the Kickstarter version. I'm not mm-hmm. going to tell you, go out and spend $300 on all this stuff and all these <laughs> minis and say you're going to have the, all this value. But the base box, the base box has everything you need to play. It's got all those scenarios, the wooden components. It looks gorgeous. It can be had for, I think you could probably find it for like 80 bucks. To me, there's tremendous value in this box. Hearing you say $300, I right away, my first thing was my stomach dropped a little bit. I'm like, oh, I don't know (laughs) if it's really worth that amount of money. Hearing that it's worth $80, there is no reason that any big time gamer, really, really dedicated gamer shouldn't try to get a copy of this for their own because yeah, 80 bucks in what you get in that, that is absolutely incredible. Truly mm-hmm. incredible. On top of that, it's going to get even better with repeat plays. On top of that, it's a great solo game. This game is hard, but it's kind of difficult. It has me thinking about it after the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be honest, I have a hard time putting words to just how much I like this. Wow. Uh, every turn gives you a series of challenges, puzzles that oftentimes can't be solved perfectly, and they're going to require trade-offs. You know what that means? Meaningful decisions. Yeah. What if we had an expedition go out sooner? Oh, what if yeah. we researched one of those techs early? We didn't go crazy on technology. We, what know. if we put a law out sooner? What if we got a law out sooner? Yeah. What if we chose something different on one of those morning cards? Uh, it's the kind of things that have me wanting to come. Like, it is still on my brain. You know, I've, I've played it with you guys, and then I did it solo like twice now. And uh-huh. I can't not think of what I'm going to try the next time I play it. So what you're saying is you you were so turned off with putting it away, you just left it up? <laughs> Actually, it's still, it's still in the basement. It hasn't made it back to the uh, the garage of despair. Now, who's it for? This is where I would love to push it on every adventure out there, but it's kind of tough to do that, isn't it, Scott? With this oh, yeah. One? Yeah, definitely. Um, cooperative game where you're going to constantly feel like you don't have a chance. I mean, there were there were turns there where I couldn't believe that we made it to the next turn. And then I was like, surely we're not going to make it to the turn after that. And, and we would, right? But you mm. eventually it, it did, in fact, where it's, it's, it's ugly head against us. It's got that against all odds simulation going on, a puzzle that doesn't allow for in any any inefficiencies and even when you do everything you possibly can sometimes the weather cards i think are just going to bring the storm in too quick and you're going to lose anyway Mm -hmm. it's not easy to learn it's not easy to teach so maybe the main point is that while i'm blown away by it i don't think it's for everybody your group's going to have to consist of hardcore gamers and i mean that no casuals for this game day and those who do show up they've got to be okay with spending a lot of time in a losing effort because more Mm -hmm. often than not you're going to be losing 
If you've got that group, or if you're a solo player, I think you two are going to be blown away by Frostpunk. Well, adventurers, it's a time when we like to look back and see what we played at this time last year, and uh, is it still something that interests us? We played Planet Unknown. Now, it's rather uh, serendipitous, there's the word I'm looking for, that it just appeared on BGA, and that's really drawn a lot of people into playing this. And I know whenever it came out, I played it immediately. I was playing it with other people. I was playing with friends. Yeah, uh, this is definitely one that sticks around. You have a great time playing it. It's an easy one that if you've been away for for a little while, little brush off the rules, you're good to go. So, yeah, it's definitely one that I am still playing. What about you, Patrick? I think that's one of the benefits of it. You just said it. The The rules only need a little brush up. I had gone months without playing it. Yeah. I, I played it at a couple of the meetups, then months without, and then it's on BGA. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember how to play this. Didn't even have to look over the rule book. For such a simple game, you do have some really neat little interactions. You have, mm-hmm. you have some good decisions to make on a turn. What with the polyomino pieces that you're placing onto the planet? The triggers from placing that piece and moving up the track. Are you going to focus on rovers? Hey, sometimes you move up a track and it gives you another benefit. Yeah. All the while scoring points. You know what? You flip that board over. You've got a unique planet on the back of it. What a what a cool game this one is. Yeah. And I think you really hit it there with the biggest thing there is making a decision on those tracks. What's going to be the most optimal decision for me to make? And if I do make a suboptimal one, is it going to hurt me for the rest of the game? Right. But I like that city track, the one that, city or civ track, yes, whichever one yes. lets you draw cards and you mm-hmm. get to pick one of the cards. That track, I love. I know. That's fun. I like that. So I take that to mean that one year later, we give high recommendations for Planet Unknown. Oh, most definitely. One of the most popular games in the hobby and the oldest in the BGG Top 100 is Crokinole. And at Level Up, we're big fans. Oh, yeah. Most of our meetups have a Crokinole board set up and ready for action. Our choice for anything and everything Crokinole is Brown Castle Games. Brown Castle is a family-owned company that produces boards of unmatched quality. With a circular frame, a variety of hardware veneer playing surfaces, and a professional edge banding, let me tell you, these boards stand out. Oh, no doubt, Scott. And along with your board, Brown Castle has the best Crokinole accessories I have ever seen. The discs, the holders, the carrying case, they make the best. Yes, they do. Adventurers, you know our style. When we partner with someone, it's to get savings for you. Exclusively Mm -hmm. for adventurers, get 5% off anything and everything from Brown Castle Games. The boards, cases, accessories, you name it. Get 5% off with promo code LEVEL5. L-E-V-E-L, the number 5, all caps, no spaces. Find it all at www.browncastlegames.com. Scott, this being the look back on Season 3 and the first episode of Season 4, we get to sort of pat ourselves on the back for just a few minutes. Bear with us, adventurers. This was a good year. Season 3 was awesome. We had our most popular episode to date, that, of course, being episode 100. Yeah. <laughs> it's one that I never thought I would be part of something 
to get to 100 episodes. Mm -hmm. It's been a huge, huge amount of fun, each single one of those episodes. Absolutely have enjoyed every moment of my time there. Guests on the show this past year, uh, Matt Cousineau, who produced Kyperium. We actually yeah. saw him at PAX on oh, yeah. Sunday before he went up to Canada. He was he came over, he stopped and checked us out. We were all playing Darwin's Journey and popped in <laughs> to say hi. It was cool to meet him in person. Yes. James from Cities of Venus, mm-hmm. a successful oh, yeah. Kickstarter, and we had a chance to go on his show as well. Yeah, ran into um, him at Origins and sat down, had dinner with him. So that was a, a, a good night that night. Uh, he and I just sat there and chatted about games for about half an hour. Dan Halligan joined us on the show, the designer of Obsession, who we got to meet in person at PAX. Uh, It was only like the second big convention he did, but man, to be able to meet him in person, shake his hand and say hi after having him on the show. I had people messaging us after that episode saying that was really great. Naturally, you try and throw all the credit to the guests. Oh, yeah, no, Dan's Dan's awesome. You know, Mm -hmm. Dan's so cool. And he was. What a cool episode. Yeah. And that's something we'll talk about at the PAX episode coming up. But mm-hmm. yeah, it, it was great talking to him. And like I said, I mean, I was in, enraptured by that game just by seeing the picture of it in Game Trade Magazine. Being able to actually talk to the guy, that was such a huge, huge moment. And of course, I'm gonna call him I'm gonna call him the grandpa at conventions or something. One of the warmest, nicest <laughs> characters that I think I've met in this hobby. We had Berkey join us. Oh, How yes. great was that? That was wonderful. Uh, love Berkey to death. I remember meeting him at Origins one year, and he was dressed up as a king, helping to teach uh, royals at Arcane Wonders booth. Yeah. And after the the whole thing, he just came up to me and goes, you know what? I had this idea of something I'm planning. I'm planning on making these things called game toppers. Mm-hmm. So I heard about this even before it even started, and the whole little planting of the idea he had and it's so wonderful to see him being so successful with it. So that was great talking with him. We found ourselves at a few conventions this year. We mm-hmm. had uh, we just had PAX before that, PGX in Pittsburgh as one of their invited guests. And of course, Origins over summer, always a blast. Always, always a great time. And PGX really in Pittsburgh was so much fun because being that it's still so new, everyone just kind of willy-nilly about what's going on there's no real there's no order (laughs) it's not that there's no rules or anything but it's just so calm and laid back and relaxed and the number of times i'm yelling over at my friend over at uh uh what is it the wandering gnome and yelling about her books that she has oh yeah left having fun joking around with people i just want more people to understand whenever i say what up nerds it's saying that I love you guys, yeah, not that it, I'm offending you. Jeez. It's, a, it's an affection thing. It's a yes, term of endearment. Exactly. I think PGX stands out for us because it is, in terms of convention, it's a small fish, right? We're mm. talking 5,000 people over the weekend. But we, or I'm sorry, it's a small pond. Yeah. Okay. Let me get this right. It's a small (laughs) pond, right? When we go to Origins or PAX, we're a very small fish in that big pond. Yes. When we go to PGX, it feels like, well, we're a slightly bigger fish in this little pond. You know, like it's closer to home and and, uh, something about PGX. Next year, can we please go as space balls? I, I see no reason why we can't. Will you be barf? I'll, I, I'm calling Dark Helmet. I want to be Dark Helmet. 
I'm going to make the helmet out of, I already know how I'm going to do it. I'm going to use like a welding mask and I'm going to use uh, like paper mache or something. Okay. I'll, I'll work on it. I'll work on something here. Brown overalls with a barf name tag and we got to put like the white spot over your eye. We can oh, yeah. make Mike be Colonel Sanders. Okay. Somebody's going to have to be Princess Vest, but like it's going to work. And then we can do the uh, the, what, the, the costume. The costume contest. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yep. We would all four have to go out together. <laughs> <laughs> and then that'll make much more sense when I just like randomly put my fist there and I go, keep firing, assholes. <laughs> oh, geez. You know what? Between PGX and the meetups this year, we gave away damn near 100 board games. Wow. That's a feat. That, that, that feels yeah. good. And a lot of that is thanks to uh, some donations that we oh, had yeah. uh, from people in the local area. If you have, thank you so much. It means the world to us to, to get that kind of support. Nice to see the guild growing, especially since we gave away promos for Fro- – uh, not Frost. What, uh, what did we uh, give them away? Flamecraft. Flamecraft, yes. And it makes me wonder you – know, I'm sure half of them joined because they wanted the promo. But like deep down <laughs> inside, I'm like, they like us. Yeah, they're yeah. here for us. <laughs> This year in total, amongst all the episodes, this past year, season three, we talked about 150 games, be it us or in one of the segments and whatnot. Looking forward to this season, Scott. We're looking to, as we mentioned, we're going to incorporate value into the breakdown Mm -hmm. a little bit more often. Also this year, we're going to continue our segments with our wonderful contributors, including a new one, which we're going to play for you right now. Game Trotting with Lena. Get your meeples hiking boots ready, because today we are heading to California, visiting Sequoia National Park, home to some of the largest trees in the world. Long before this forest was established as a national park, it was home to multiple Native American tribes with a well-established trade route that utilized the plant and animal resources the forest has to offer. They would trade salt, pine nuts, minerals for paints, berries, bear skins, and much more. Later, Sequoia National Park became the second United States National Park, established on September 25, 1890, and today sees over a million visitors each year. It's home to nearly 300 animal species and 1,300 native plant species. This park is massive, with 328,315 acres of land, and that's just one of the many giants this park has in its claim to fame. What is Sequoia National Park's biggest attraction? The giant trees, of course. They're so ginormous, the Sequoia Forest is named the Giant Forest. So let's take a hike through this forest together. We'll first start at the Giant Forest Museum, a building registered on the National Register of Historic Places. From here, we can learn about the history of Sequoia National Park and discover multiple trails for any level of hiker, including the Congress Trail and the Big Trees Trail. Now entering into the Giant Forest, we'll find the largest tree by volume in the world, named the General Sherman. This tree is a whopping 275 feet tall and 36 feet in diameter at the trunk base. The second largest tree is at the park next door, Kings Canyon National Park, with the General Grant tree at 268 feet tall. How these trees get their names? Both men who discovered the trees decided to give them names of generals they served under. James Wolverton named the General Sherman after his commanding officer in the 9th Indiana Cavalry, and General Grant was named by Joseph Hardin after the Civil War general. A fun fact about the General Grant tree, it is also known as our nation's Christmas tree. One little girl with a wild imagination while visiting the National Park declared, 
What a wonderful Christmas tree this would be! Two local leaders overheard this fun idea and got it all the way to the White House. President Calvin Coolidge decided to make this tree history and declared it as the nation's Christmas tree. Kings Canyon offers a trek to the nation's Christmas tree nearly every December. As if the trees aren't grand enough, let's go visit another giant, Mount Whitney, which is the highest peak in the contiguous United States at 14,505 feet above sea level, also located in Sequoia National Park. The elevation is so high, you can continue to find snow at its peak even in the middle of July. This doesn't stop it from having tens of thousands of hikers to summit the mountain each year. If you plan on hiking Mount Whitney, get your permit well in advance because the limit how many visitors climb each day. You're a smart traveler joining me today, so I've got you covered with our passes. What else can we tour after the giant forest in Mount Whitney? Get ready as we prepare to climb 350 steps up the Morrow Walk to see the western half of Sequoia National Park and the stunning view of the Great Western Divide. We'll also visit Tacapa Falls, a 1,200-foot waterfall that runs and winds through the Sequoia National Park. The best time to visit this waterfall is during the spring and early summer from the snow runoff. We're even going underground to explore the Crystal Cave, discovering an array of colors from minerals and a wild amount of formations along the cave walls and ceilings. As we're heading out in our car exploring, we're going to take a drive through the tunnel log. Who thought of putting a tunnel through a tree? Well, in 1937, a 2,000-year-old sequoia measuring at 275 feet tall and 25 feet in diameter collapsed onto the road. Since this tree would be monstrous to try and move, people decided to cut a tunnel into the tree instead. Now this is a popular spot to drive through, but make sure your car is under 8 feet tall, or you'll have to take the side road. Whew, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty tired from all this trekking today. Let's head back to our cabin and play a game. Let me introduce you to Sequoia, released in 2020 from Allplay. This game fits in a tiny handheld-sized box, making it incredibly easy to take along for traveling. In Sequoia, we're competing to have the biggest tree from 11 different forests. Simultaneously, everyone rolls the dice, makes two sets of numbers with your dice, and places two tokens on each of your forests. Whoever gets the largest tree in those forests gets the most points. I love that this game only takes a couple minutes to teach and plays in 10 quick rounds, everyone playing all together. I enjoy as each round progresses, you start noticing which forest you're competing against. Sometimes I'll think, okay, I've got this forest, it's mine. And suddenly two other players start planting their trees there too, and now I'm dwarfed by someone else's larger sequoia. It makes for a good laugh when you're so confidently in a forest, and there's your opponent who is now dominating, towering over you as you're lamenting, hey, that's supposed to be my forest. Do you abandon that spot, or do you hold your ground? Sequoia is easy enough for your non-gamer friends to pick up, or your regular gamer friends to play through when you're short on time. It's a perfect game for us to end our day of trekking through the Sequoia National Park. Who do we have to thank for preserving this beautiful forest? Let me finish by telling you about Walter Fry and General Charles Young. In the late 1800s, Walter Fry was a logger who traveled out west for work. When chopping down a giant sequoia, he was shocked to count the rings and find the tree was over 3,000 years old. Fry made a petition to preserve the forest and became one of Sequoia National Park's rangers, then superintendent, and a U.S. magistrate. We can also thank General Charles Young. He was born a slave during the Civil War and became the third African-American to graduate from the United States prestigious military academy, West Point. During his career, he was assigned a post in Sequoia National Park. He also became a park superintendent, 
helped preserve the park from illegal logging, and created the first road that went to Sequoia National Park for people to come and experience the beauty themselves. Thanks to these men, we're still able to enjoy these beautiful giants today. Until we meet again, Game Trotters, see you on the next trip! I know I'm not a big one for like national parks or anything, but this past summer going out west and doing that, I really got to enjoy it and see the special part of it. And hearing you talk about that and everything behind the game, that's really wonderful. And I'm so glad we're able to have you on here doing that kind of thing. Lena had transferred here to Western Pennsylvania and she just put out a thing. She was looking for gamers. We'd started talking, chatting with the Westmoreland Gamers Guild, and she would come around to SCG, play some games, and it's been a wonderful friendship with her, and I can't wait to hear more from her and definitely play more games with her as well. Absolutely. Thank you, Lena. Gang, it's time for arguably my favorite segment of the whole year. We do it in the first episode. We're going to look back on all of the games that we reviewed in year three. And we're going to give our top ten. Our favorite ten 8-bit breakdown games. You ready? I have my list written right here, ready to go. Are you just, are you intentionally, vigorously shaking the paper? Because I'm excited. Give it one more for the adventures. Oh, oh, that feels good. All right, King, do you want to go first or do you want to have the last word? Well, do we want to give the list of what we did? Oh, it's a big list. Okay, I'm going to... Here, I got it. I got it. I'm ready to go. Okay, go. Planet Unknown, Terracotta Army, Mythic Mischief, Wonderland's War, Obsession, Lacrimosa, G.I. Joe deck building game, Korra, Brazil Imperial, Clask, Marvel, Age of Heroes, Marvel, Damage Control... War of the Ring card game, Guild of Merchant Explorers, D&D Trials of Tempest, Rauha, Thunder Road Vendetta, <laughs> Russian Railroads, After Us, Princess of Florence, Neotopia, Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy, Humanity, Snapships Tactics, and Sky Team. All right. Okay, so that's that's the list, and we have to pick the 10. Yes. You want first or second? This first one or last tough. word? I, I, I can go first. I can go first. Okay. I'll let you have the last word. Sounds good. What's your number 10, King? Number 10. This was a game I was really psyched about at Origins coming out. And I got it before I went, and that made it even better. And I got a chance to look at and dig into it, and I was thrilled to get Lacrimosa. This was a game from Devere that I was so drawn to just from the box cover, seeing Mozart on it. And all the tiny little things you have to do there with putting the music notes out and getting composers to finish Mozart's work and moving around in Austria trying to find different things wonderful game that I have not gotten back to the table enough that Mm -hmm. I'm hopefully going to turn that around here soon and get a solo game of it in. But yes, Lacrimosa, I was so excited to get. That is my number 10. My number 10 is Terracotta Army. 
Terracotta Army is a game that's got uh, basically worker placement as its base mechanic. It's got those wheels that are constantly shifting. Oh, so yes. you, you can kind of manipulate them sometimes and you're trying to make the most efficient choices that you can. And then you're building the Terracotta Army off to the sideboard, that grid, and the placement matters. You've got the inspectors that score at the end of the round and you can manipulate them and they have end game scoring linked to them. Something about that game, that being able to see the army get built in the mm-hmm. tomb it's just a neat game. I, I've taught that one to Adam. Uh, he's actually got my copy now. So <laughs> we got a chance to play it with Brennan, with Mike this past year. So it's one that did get back to the table several times after the review. I played it at Origins with Adam as well. My number 10 is Terracotta Army. What's your number nine? Number nine was one that was given us to review from WizKids, and that was Princes of Florence. Hmm. This was a great one as far as the auction went and building up your tableau in front of you with your little city. There was just something about it that just really grabbed my imagination. And I really enjoyed all the extra little uh, objectives you had to try and do. And the extra things you had to do to add on to it. Like if you had gestures, you would get more money for that. If you had more um, of the people constructing stuff, that would get things up quicker and cheaper. So many neat little things there. The interesting way of scoring stuff. Very cool game. Very nice update from the original. Oh, they did game. a heck of a job making it pretty. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're really drawn in. The artwork is gorgeous on it. Princes of Florence, my number nine. Well, my number nine is a recent mega hit, and I understand it's actually going to be back on crowdfunding soon with a oh. new expansion, and that's Thunder Road Vendetta. Mm. Something about the theme of this game. You know what? You, I said it when we reviewed it. You're not going to sit down and think your way out of a situation. It's mayhem. It's it's complete mayhem. Oh, yeah. And so much of it is just randomness, but it's fun. And you know what? Isn't that the goal to be able to walk away from a game going, man, I had a really good time with that. In spite of its mechanisms, this game is a good time <laughs> in a pretty compact amount of time. That's my number nine, Thunder Road Vendetta. Number eight. My number eight was Thunder Road Vendetta. Get Um, out. (laughs) Yes. You just Um, bumped into my car. Yeah, it starts off and you're seeing all these things where you're going to bump into cars and they're going to run into rocks and going to do this. And that first couple turns, they're like, no, it's not going to happen. Oh, but you get to like turn four. Mass chaos is going on. You bump into one car that's going to bump into another car, bump into another car, and knock you off the the whole board. Wonderful stuff. And there's nothing more frightening than having three prepubescent boys, my nephews, <laughs> sitting on the other side of the table, whispering, "Let's kill Scott." That is really frightening, right there. So that definitely brings it up there. So Thunder Road is my number eight. For number eight, I went with your number 10, Lacrimosa. Oh! This game's got a classic Euro feel to it, but with updated mechanisms. You're chaining things together. I love the slotting cards in the mm-hmm. top, the bottom of the board. The production value is nice. The colors, the, the color palette, the, the red, black, white, and cream. Like, it seems yeah. silly to be like, oh, yeah, I know that. But you know what? Maybe that's it. The aesthetic of the game draws me back in it. And I think it makes my number eight because I'm teased by it a little bit because I haven't had it back to the table and I know that I would like to play it again. So it's got that allure of the unknown a little bit like, Mm -hmm. oh, I only did this a few times for the review. I'd really like to play it again. And it is my number eight. What you got for number seven, King? Well, number seven might come as a little bit of a surprise, but that is Eclipse Second Dawn for the Galaxy. 
there was something with this that really grabbed me that Twilight Imperium doesn't do. And I think it's one of those things where- You always got to throw that in there. It can't just stand and, and merit it on its own. You've always got to Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. We know I, you don't like TI. No, no, I don't. But anyway, it was just something about how you upgrade each of the ships. There was just something that the way that this game was brought across, it just spoke to me. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. And it's still always in the back of my mind thinking, do I need a copy? I might need a copy. So um, yeah, Eclipse, Second Dawn for the Galaxy, that is my number seven. Speaking of surprises, my number seven, I couldn't do my list without sneaking it in there. Okay. That's that's Clask. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know what? It's a not traditional board game in that sense. It's a dexterity game. Think air hockey with magnets and wood. Mm-hmm. Dude, Clask is phenomenal. For what it is, it is absolutely phenomenal. It plays quick. You can make tournaments. They even have a big round four-player board oh, yeah. if you wanted to do a teams game. Or, I mean, it's it's addicting. You win, you lose. You're like, let's go again. Let's go again. Mm-hmm. I've done tournaments with this. We have it at the meetups. It's our feature game when we do PGX. Like, you can have people come up and just play. Oh, my, yes. I'll always want to have a Clask board. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's kind of a staple in my gaming repertoire who I am. Gots to have a class board. So for me, while it might not be a traditional pick, it is my number seven. Clask. Well, What's your number six? One. Well, mine falls into that whole non-traditional type of game too, and that is Snapship's Tactics. This is more of the smaller space battle games there. Uh, doesn't really do anything all that new with the mechanics, but the fun aspect of building the ships to look like you want them to. Loads of fun with this. Really grabs your attention on the table. Not that difficult to play. And people may look at that thinking, oh, it's a tactical game where I have to fly the ships around. I'm not going to know what to do. No, you're going to know what to do. It's very simple to get into. Lots of fun. Absolutely. Snap Ships Tactics is my number six. For number six, I put our look back today from the time warp, Planet Unknown. Planet Unknown's phenomenal. There, that's all there is to it. It's so easy to pick up to play. It plays up to six people. Mm-hmm. You got that rondelle and well, the lazy Susan in the middle. You can move the pieces to get it to each person, like right in front of them. You've got the end game targets. You've got all those wonderful things that we mentioned in the look back. It's on Board Game Arena now. So if you don't have a copy yet, give it a try on there. It's remarkable. The interface is fantastic. And if you love it, you can go out and get yourself a copy. It's my number six from this past year, Planet Unknown. Number five for me, this is another one that was <laughs> provided by WizKids, and this is not a, a, a You're plug a shill. <laughs> this was Marvel Age of Heroes. Okay. I don't have a copy of Lords of Waterdeep, but this was really just basically a reskinning of that game. But it was a reskinning of that game with X-Men from the 90s, which was my, what I want to say here, my wheelhouse whenever it came to X-Men comics. I Mm -hmm. love the artwork. I love the stories, everything about it. And I'm seeing it come out in front of me. And they have those awesome little acrylic standees with the different characters. Just did a lot to my mind as far as seeing that and reliving that. It was a nostalgic moment for me playing this and seeing those stories come out in front of me. It might not be the the favorite for many people. I think a lot of people out there that I'm playing it, they thought it went a little too long. They didn't like this. They didn't like that. But for me, it checked all the boxes of what I wanted to do as a fun game to play. So yes, Marvel Age of Heroes was my number five. 
You know what? That game's got pretty engaging card play. I like the cooldown, like how you have to work up to your special abilities. Um, The fact that like the worker placement spots start to expand. It's one that I wouldn't be opposed to revisiting. I am in that camp of, man, it just went a bit too long. But it was fun the whole time. You know, like it was fun up until that last, for me anyway, 10 or 20% where it's like, okay, I've done what the game wants me to do. Now we're going through the motions. I I would like to give it another go. Okay. I'm making my list of ones to bring back. <laughs> my number five is Russian Railroads, one that we've been playing a lot ever since the <laughs> yeah. review. We've been playing the heck out of it. I taught it to Jeremy, so it's one of our asynchronous plays online. But man, this game is cool. This game's really cool. So much of what you're going to do that's different from other people are based on the first time you hit one of those light bulbs on a track and you get to select which upgrade you want. And whatever you select, you know, that's going to be unique to you. So, like, if you take the cards, that the one that lets you pick an in-game card and Mm -hmm. uh, and an end-game card, your in-game card is going to be different than anyone else's. And I explained it to Jeremy whenever whenever I was teaching. I was like, here's what's neat. Whatever you pick there, I can't get. They're all remarkably powerful. And it's what makes you you. It's the one differentiator that you have from every other player. Aside from that, the game's got the same spots every time. Yeah, the mm-hmm. engineers come out different, but that's minor. It's the same spots. You pick one of five or six different strategies and you try and hammer it home. But man, that card can, whichever one you pick, that can really drive it home. Uh, no pun intended, what with <laughs> railroads. My number five, Russian Railroads. Top four now, Scott. What's your number four? All right. Number four, you already talked about, and that was Planet Unknown. All right. Just being able to look at it and try and fit those pieces together in the most optimal way, getting the largest section of the lava or the water, make sure the water is over top of the water areas, and then mm-hmm. realizing that you just really screwed yourself over and you can't fit another piece in there. And it's like, oh, crap, but it's a good, oh, crap, mm-hmm. or as mm-hmm. we like to call it, a damn it moment. Yes. Yes. It's such an inviting game to play almost kind of like playing multiplayer solitaire in a way, but yes, you have that. But the biggest thing there is whenever you move that lazy Susan around, you're kind of stuck with what someone else, because they could look at it and think, oh, he needs that piece. I'm going to make sure he doesn't get that. So it's little things like that that do keep it involved with the other players, but still it's, it is kind of like multiplayer solitaire, but that's not a bad thing. It's a great game whenever you're trying to put it together. Great puzzle. That's the the word I think I'm really going for there. Yeah. Playing an unknown. Check it out. BGA. Awesome stuff. Scott, my number four is one that surprised both of us because whenever we did our look back on the 10 most recent reviewed games and we said these are our top five, mm-hmm. this one actually took the number one spot for both of us in that segment of 10, and that's Guild of Merchant Explorers. Oh. I have it as my number four. When you consider I got Russian Railroads on here, Planet Unknown, Lacrimosa, Thunder Road, I put Guild of Merchant Explorers at number four, and I mean it. Man, this game is fantastic. Wonderful little flipping right that gives you all these, well, flipping place cube. It's yeah, not really, yeah. You're not writing. <laughs> It's wonderful. It's absolutely fantastic. You feel like you're exploring. Everybody's got the same player board. Mm-hmm. You're flipping cards and selling where you can place cubes to explore. It actually feels like you're exploring because your cubes are getting further and further out. Then you're setting up those little villages, those encampments. Yeah. You could start from there, and that's where you're going to start to differentiate from other people. You hit those shipwrecks, the ruins, and you're going to get cards that are going to differentiate you. Oh, I did a thing that you couldn't. Then you get that special card. You're always seeing the five cards, but then everybody gets their level 
level one. Here's your level one. This is something you can do. I had one one time. It was like, pick a line of water. Like, just pick a water space and draw a line across every water space there. Holy (laughs) cover, five, five desert areas all at once. Just great game. Every time I play it, have a good time with it. It's easy to teach. Plays in about an hour. And it's my number four from this past year. Guild of Merchant Explorers. What you got for three, King? Number three kind of opened my eyes as to what I enjoy. And it's G.I. Joe, the deck building game. Yeah. I've brought this back so many times and played it over and over and over. And me, I get more into, I'm not like you where I'm sitting there thinking, what's going to be the best, most strategic way of being able to beat this thing? Sure, it's on my mind and everything, but I'm thinking, wow, I want to put Beachhead, Scarlet, and Gung Ho on a team, throw the, oh, put them on a whale. That would be awesome there and take them in and do that. It may do absolutely crap, but in my mind, man, that was a freaking awesome episode of G.I. Joe. Yeah, it's like you're watching a cartoon when you play. Oh, absolutely. And it's just a, a, a silly game to play. It's not changing the rules of anything that you haven't played before but just the theme of gi joe i i love it they've done a great job with their other things with power rangers and transformers but they're all different games and we won't go into that right now but yes gi joe the deck building game i have so much fun playing that whenever i get it out yeah that's all i got for that i mean (laughs) okay fair enough (laughs) gi joe deck building game is your number three scott mine is Wonderland's War. I knew it was going to be in there somewhere. Oh, you knew it was going to be on there. This game's phenomenal. So Wonderland's War, uh, everybody gets some character from Alice in Wonderland. Be Alice, the Red Queen, the Jabberwock, whatever. It starts with the tea party phase, and then it goes to, we'll call it a battle phase, an engagement phase. So tea parties where you're going to be drafting cards that do a thing. You're not keeping these cards. You're not deck building. They just you're basically drafting. Uh, here's an action that you get. You're going to add this chip to your bag, and you're going to get to put two people, two followers into one of the areas of the board. Little things like that. You're going around. It's basically a rondelle of cards that will refresh as people go around. And then you go into the second phase, which is the actual conflict area, where you're the five areas of the board that are worth various point values. You're going to have conflicts with these people. And how do you do it? That's the hook of this game. It's pulling chips out of your bag, a la Orléans, where Mm. you might pull what you want. You might pull something that you don't want. Dude, it's just fantastic. So, Scott, this is a complex game. You know, this this is one that I'm going to push on everybody. But like for a gamer, gamer, you adventure, you're listening to a board game podcast. You've played some difficult games. You're going to understand how to play this, right? But you're not going to be able to play it with total casuals. It's got to be for your game day with your gamer buddies or your gamer girls, right? It's very good. Uh, It's got a lot of mechanisms going on. What with the tea party, what with the battles going on, the bag building, the upgrading of your characters, the adding fortresses to the board. But they're all there for a good reason. And they make an experience that is very different from most games. Yeah. So for me, number three, Wonderland's War. I have a feeling I know what's going to happen at the top, but. I, I know what your number one is. Okay, okay. I, I have a good I'm feeling just, I know what yours is. Hold on. Let me see if I can – I don't have a pen. I would write it down and I could just hold it up when you say it to, <laughs> to prove. Be that as it may, Scott, what's your number two? My number two was one that you talked about earlier and that is Guild of Merchant Explorers. Number two overall. How about – who would have thunk it when I we know, played that thing? I know. In 
it's a doll-looking game. Tan and a little bit of beige and maybe some eggshell, I think, in there for good measure. (laughs) There's nothing in it that makes it stand out, but that's what makes it so enjoyable to play because it does make you feel like you're on an old-time map. Like you're in the back of the ship and you're writing down where the ship's going to be going, what we're doing, everything like that. It's basically a flip and write, but Mm -hmm. you don't have to write. You just put out the little cubes and then you get rid of them at the end. So you can play over on the most maps over and over. And there's how many different maps in that too? Uh, Yeah, I think there's four different maps that you can play with. It's wide open for expansions of more maps they could put out. Such a simple game. Just get that feeling of whenever you're putting things together and you're seeing that long shipping trail going to the shipwreck or going up to the city. And it's just such a great feeling. My number two is Guild of Merchant Explorers. I'm going to surprise you here, Scott. My number two is Obsession. My number two is Obsession. I was just writing it down there. I thought that was your number one. It probably should be. It might be suffering from the I've played it so much now. Mm-hmm. That oh, there's sure. something else that I'm, you know, that my mind is preoccupied with. Obsession, I mean, I, we don't really have to say much about it that we haven't said already. Uh, so I'm not going to talk about the gameplay at all. It's, it's a fantastic, engaging experience. The theme is unique. Having met Dan, the designer, it, it's just mm-hmm. that much more enjoyable to me. So I, have, I feel like I have a connection to it now. Yeah, Obsession. Uh, still loving it, still playing it. I've got like six async games live. Well, not live, async at the moment uh, on BGA. <laughs> so it's been a constant since we reviewed it. So my number two is Obsession, and I'm assuming it's your number one. That is my number one, yes. <laughs> yep. um, once again, with the different ways we play these games, you really focus in on the numbers and what's mm-hmm. going to be the best thing for you. I'm st- still in that imaginary world of seeing, well, who would go together better with that? Oh, there's that hussy there. We need to get rid of her. Uh, <laughs> and all those little things there that go through my mind that I know is going to hurt me in the long run playing this game. But boy, in my mind at that time, I'm I'm making up a hell of an episode of a TV show called Obsession. Let me tell you. Oh, yeah. That's so rich and not knowing what's the next room's going to be that comes up and in the lineup, in the market, all those different things that come up. Who's going to be the next person that comes up? What's the next color room that's going to come up that you need to get the most of to to lure in the Fairchilds? What are you going to do? There's so many decisions. It is so much fun. And number Mm -hmm. one is definitely obsession. Okay. I wrote down another one. So let's see if I'm good on this one. What did you write down? I went for an off-track one here, and I thought, Rauha. You thought my number one game this past year was Rauha? Do I you don't listen know. to the show, bro? I, I do, but I wasn't sure. I mean, you threw me off with Obsession being number two, so I didn't know even what to think. Adventures, do you know what my number one is? Yeah, you do. Scott, my number one is Eclipse, second dawn for the galaxy. <laughs> I did not see that coming. Really? No. How could you not? It's a space <clears throat> game where you're fighting and coming to fisticuffs and explode. Like, it's got everything. But I had everything pat. I thought that it didn't live up to what you want next to TI and everything. I no, I really no, no, didn't think it would be on your list. Uh, to be honest, I truly did not think it was going to be on your list. No, let's call those those two games. You know, if we're going to keep with the comparison, I'll call them mom and dad. You know what I mean? I, <laughs> okay. I love them both. <laughs> 
So Eclipse is the Euro space game, and it definitely is a Euro. There's far more need to manage your economy in Eclipse mm-hmm. than in other similar 4X coming to fisticuffs, fighting each other in space types of games that shall go unnamed. I love the upgrading of the ships. Yes. Anytime a game gives players, we'll say pretty similar starts with pretty similar capabilities, and then it gives you the option for how you're going to differentiate yourself from one another, mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. And Eclipse does that. And it does it so well, not just with the random technologies that you can select for your faction, but also for your ships. My fighters might be little glass cannons. Basically, no shields, one seat, and 18 guns and missiles on each side. <laughs> Somebody else's fighters might be able to take the brunt of the hits. They got extra powerful shields so that their big ships can do the damage, and they'll soak it all up with these little little flies buzzing around them, right? You can envision what's going on. The components are fantastic. I love that the space map, as it builds out, has – we'll call them the uh, the invisible fences. Yes. You have to be connected by those wormholes, and that's a passable – place, uh, basically edge to edge from one hex to the next. If the circle lines up, well, then that's adjacent. You can move through it. And it ain't always going to line up. And you have a little bit of say in that whenever you're exploring and expanding Mm -hmm. upon the galaxy that you're creating together. So sometimes if I'm like two hexes away, right? Uh, So Scott, I have my, my forces right here. Then there's nothing in between us. And then there's you. Right. Boy, if you go exploring, you can set that new tile down so that I'm suddenly not two spaces away. I can go up and around. (laughs) I've never seen that before. And I really like it. It gives the it gives the space that you're creating three dimensions. Because Mm -hmm. in my mind it's like, oh, I can't just go through there. I gotta go up and around that space. You know what I mean? Oh, Eclipse was a phenomenal play. I unfortunately, <laughs> since uh, since we did the review, have not had it back to the table, but it ain't going anywhere. It's parked and waiting for a Jeremy and Ryan and you day. Oh, yes. And we're going to sink our teeth right back into it. That sounds absolutely awesome. That sounds like a great time then. Well, there you go, Adventures. That's the top 10 games from each of us that we reviewed in Season 3. That means for King, it was... Lacrimosa, Princes of Florence, Thunder Road Vendetta, Eclipse, Snapships Tactics, Marvel Age of Heroes, Planet Unknown, G.I. Joe, a deck building game, Guild of Merchant Explorers, and Obsession. And my top 10, Terracotta Army, Thunder Road Vendetta, Lacrimosa, Clask, Planet Unknown, Russian Railroads, Guild of Merchant Explorers, Wonderland's War, Obsession, and Eclipse. Gotta tell you, King, it's kind of nice to see some differentiation in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think that really shows that we're kind of branching out here and doing different games that we normally wouldn't play. I love it. I mean, there are some things that I never would have been drawn to, but saying that, hey, we're going to do this for review. Let's give it a try. And it really opens up my eyes to games I normally would not actually look at. So top-notch list. And you know what? Go on our Facebook page. Give us your top 10 from the, the last games that we played. Let's see how ours match up to yours. We'd love to see what your uh, what your top 10 list. Maybe there's something that we missed that we're like, you know what? Maybe that would take my number nine spot instead of what I put in there. Put down what you think your top Scott 10 Trope, list is. Hold on. You've, you've inspired me. Oh, okay. 
We're trying to make more use of the guild. I'm yes. going to put up, this will be in the guild forums. Just go to our guild, 3722. Hopefully many of you are already a forum member. If you don't feel like going on Board Game Geek, just look at the show notes for this episode and you can see BGG Guild. Touch there. It'll take you right to our guild. Join it. We'll give you 10 geek gold so you can get your own Wilford. One of the forum posts, and I'll put this up, is going to be a list of the games that we reviewed this year. Nice. And just hit us with your top three. Tell me yeah, what your top three are. And you know, if you've only played eight of them, that's fine. Tell me what your top three are adventures and uh, let's do a contest. Let's do a little giveaway. Okay. Uh, what are you going to give away, Scott? <laughs> I got a few <laughs> games here that we could definitely give away. We'll do a to be announced. We'll pick, yeah, a, yeah, yeah, we'll yeah. pick a winner. We'll send them the uh, the picture. You, most people don't know this, but whenever you win a game from us, we give you a, a glossy black and white photo of Scott that says, you just leveled up. As the king, of course. And it's signed. Mm-hmm. You know what? I have a sealed copy of one of the games we had an interview with the designer. What do you say? Nut hunt. But I want that. <laughs> Pick something else. Uh, okay. okay, fine. Be- nut hunt it is. To be determined then. Probably Nut Hunt, since we already said it. Where'd it go? Well, no, you, can cut, you can cut that out. All right, we've come to the end of the first episode of Season 4. King, it is still just as delightful as it feels like the first time. It is delightful. I've had so much fun on this journey and looking forward to all sorts. Of, I mean, hell, we're going to Knoxville for a show as guests. Who would ever thought that would happen? That's exciting. Yes, um, it is. I'm excited. But we're going to finish this episode the way that we do every one of them. That's how we leveled up since the last time we were together. Now, it's obviously got to be something PAX related, but let's try and hold off with too much PAX talk here. I'm going to go with a minor thing from the event, okay? Mm -hmm. Uh, So Friday, I was like, I'm getting hungry. And I went over to Reading Terminal Market. And uh, honestly, I didn't care what I ate. I wanted to find somewhere that didn't have a line. And that (laughs) that Cajun place with the Creole and whatnot. They have a bar set up like going around their little area and there was one stool with like the heavenly sun rays were shining on it. I was like, yep. oh, that's what I'm eating Cajun today. It's got myself a blackened catfish po' boy. And I was like, well, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to look at my phone and just enjoy some quiet time. And it didn't happen. Oh. Didn't happen. No, lady sitting next to me was named Jane. And we talked games the whole lunchtime. No. <laughs> There's, there's an age gap, right? Uh, so it's like, well, how much can we have in common? And you know what? You'd be surprised when it comes to gaming. You can just keep on bantering and bantering. So I was expecting a quiet lunch tinkering on the phone, and it turned into a very pleasant conversation with Jane. So you never know. Uh, you never know what's going to come of just chatting with someone new. So that is my level up. What you got, King? Well, my level up is also PAX-related adjacent. And that was something that has been trying to happen here for quite some time. Finally got a chance to sit down and play Flesh and Blood with Josh. We got our Blitz decks out. We started playing. It is a fun little game. And we had a grand old time there playing it. So yes, finally got a chance to play that. So now then I can't have that sitting on my back as that monkey on there going, you need to play with Josh. You need to play with Josh. Mm -hmm. Well, I played with Josh and it was a good time. So I leveled up. Hey, adventurers, don't forget, get on our guild 3722. That's where we're going to have the forum post up where we want to hear your top three games of the games that we reviewed in season three. Stick around. Next week, we're going to be doing our PAX recap. All the shenanigans from this past weekend at Philadelphia. King, you get the last word. Okay, well, this is kind of related to this whole podcast. If there's something you want to do, 
do it. You need to take that first step into the direction of what you want to have happen. You don't know where it's going to go. So far, this has been an absolute blast, and I'm so thrilled that you would ask me to come along on this journey with you, Patrick. So, you got a new year coming up. Go for it. Give it a try. If it doesn't work out, okay, it didn't work out. But you don't know unless you give it a try. Adventurers, have a great new year. Thank you, adventurers, for joining us for this episode of the Level Up Board Game Podcast. We encourage all adventurers to check out our website at levelupgamepodcast.com. That's where you can submit your thoughts and audio to be used in a future episode. Please consider rating us on iTunes, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and join the Board Game Geek Guild, Guild 3722. Music for the podcast provided by Adam Haynes and the Heatley Brothers. And remember, whether in hobby or in life, always do what you can to level up.